They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are very much diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 hours or 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head, one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 42 Digging Deeper The last episode left us thinking about a man called John Gick, a 37-year-old scoutmaster from Douglas in the Isle of Man. He had travelled with a group of scouts across to Liverpool in early February 1969. He left the scout troop with colleagues in Birkenhead, which is just across the Mersey, and then he travelled back alone to Liverpool and disappeared, simply vanished without trace. Physically, there are some striking similarities between John Gick and our victim Fred. The age is right, the hair length is right, the hair colour is right, the height is right, the build is right, and I'm speculating here, but I bet John Gick also had well-groomed nails. And the date of his disappearance corresponds perfectly with the date of deposition of Fred, which decomposition evidence would suggest sometime between spring 1969 and summer 1970. It even fits the date of the ring, which we know was made between late 1967 and early 1968. Now, unidentified bodies in the UK are exceptionally rare. And here we have a man of very similar attributes completely vanishing at exactly the right time. Now the problem is, it's in Liverpool, 120 miles away from Burton. And that's nothing in most countries, but in the UK, it feels quite a long way away. And there are a lot of places in the middle. But as we mentioned earlier, if Fred is John Gick, it's not John Gick that needs to know about that burial site. Only the person who buried him needs to have a connection with Windshill. But we need to keep our feet on the ground. In all probability, the chances are still low. But so far, I haven't seen anything compelling that is ruling out John Gick. Now, obviously, the police have been informed and it's been all over the newspapers in the UK, local and national. The headline annoys me slightly. Man claims to identify 50-year-old murder victim. In fact, that's absolutely not true. I'm not, at this point, claiming it is John Gick. I'm merely pointing out that he is someone that fits the known facts. It could well not be John Gick, but it could very well still be him. And with a 50-year-old case, you don't get many opportunities where someone could be that person. Earlier this week, I requested an update from Staffordshire Police, who, to their credit, 
appear to be taking this seriously. Before the last episode, I had sent them all of our findings, and a couple of days later, I got a reply. It was quite a formal reply. Dear Mr. Davis, thank you for your email. I can confirm that I have examined the material you provided, as has the officer in the case and the senior investigating officer. Presently, we are awaiting the results of some further inquiries, but there is no update at this stage. Kind regards, Staffordshire Police. So, additional inquiries are taking place. We don't know the nature of those inquiries, and to be honest, getting detailed information out of the police is like pulling teeth. We've never even been able to organise an interview from anyone from the police on this podcast. So, we're going to have to be very, very patient on this. There'll be no quick responses from that quarter. Now, I hope, but they have no way of confirming that they're checking his DNA. They may be, they may not be. That would be the obvious thing to do to me, but more on that later. So, let's try and piece this together a bit more. Firstly, you'll remember John Gick was assaulted after he travelled back to Liverpool in a gent's toilet in James Street. Now, James Street is a busy thoroughfare leading away from the pier head into the city centre. And the fact that John Gick left his car at the pier head is probably not unusual because he was employed by the ferry operator that travelled regularly between the Isle of Man and Liverpool. The pier head is a key area in connection with that. He may well have known exactly where to park his car. What is a little strange to me is that he had his car at all. If he had a number of scouts with him, what use was his car? He couldn't hope to fit in his car, I don't think. So it's kind of clear to me that he had his car in order to get back to Liverpool on his own for this non-existent business appointment. And this was 1969. Homosexuality was legal on the mainland, but highly illegal back in the Isle of Man and would be for many years to come. And I'm speculating here, but I think there's a good chance that John Gick, a 37-year-old bachelor from the Isle of Man, was gay and he came to Liverpool in order to find sexual partners. There's no judgment on that. These days, we consider that just as natural as being straight. But in 1969, it wasn't thought of quite like that. And Liverpool, at the end of the 60s, was quite the place. The Beatles were just recording Abbey Road. Music, fashion, Liverpool was culturally quite the cosmopolitan city, world famous. And compared to the traditional, conservative, reactionary attitudes back home on the Isle of Man, it must have seemed like the promised land. But for gay men, it was still far from straightforward to find sexual partners. There's a painting in the Museum of Liverpool called The Wheel of Fortunes by an artist called Yankel Feather. Now, Yankel Feather was a well-known figure in Liverpool clubland back in the 50s and 60s. He knew them all, the Beatles, Brian Epstein, Cilla Black. He was a proudly gay man at a time of intolerance. And his painting, The Wheel of Fortune, depicts a public toilet, actually in Williamson Square, Liverpool, which is about half a mile away from James Street. And the notes in the museum say this. For many gay 
bisexual or bi-curious men, one of the only places to find sexual partners without fear of being spotted in a gay bar or club was to go cottaging, to look for sexual partners in public toilets. And the Wheel of Fortune was the name given to the toilets in Williamson Square. Last week I spoke to someone whose grandfather and great-grandfather were Liverpool City policemen and they were tasked with catching gay men in the city centre. He mentioned James Street Toilet as one of those cottages which were infamous for that reason. And it was a problem because many of the gents' toilets in Liverpool were used for this purpose and there were many physical assaults and many incidents of extreme violence and very few were ever reported to the police because of the nature of the activities which were going on in those toilets. It put gay men in an extraordinarily vulnerable position. Thank God we live now in a more enlightened time where gay men don't have to do that to find partners. But in 1969, they did. But it's also interesting to note that although John Gick was definitely beaten up in James Street toilets, he also never reported it to the police. That whole assault only came to light after his assailants were located because they'd stolen his bank book and used it. They then confessed to the assault. John Gick never reported it. Why? I think we know why. But why is John Gick's sexuality relevant at all? It's not illegal. And to be honest, it's only his business. But we've long felt that there's some evidence that Fred may have been a gay man, not least of which is the presence of that ring on his right wedding ring finger. That can be explained by a Central European wedding, but then why is the ring made in the UK? It can be an indicator of being in a gay relationship. It's well documented that within the LGBTQ community, there is a tendency to wear wedding rings on the right hand. A quick note on pronunciation. I'm starting to think Gick should be pronounced Jick. Jick, spelt with a J, is present as a surname on the Isle of Man and in Ireland. And I think these are different spellings of the same pronunciation. Jick with a J and Jick with a G. So from now on, I'm going to call John, John Jick. Now, soon after the last episode, I received an email from Perth, Western Australia, from a man called Michael Wood. Now, Michael's a listener. He's been listening to the podcast for a very long time. But what we spoke about in episode 41 made the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. Our story of John Jick had a direct personal connection to him. Michael's father, Christopher Wood, who sadly no longer with us, hailed from Douglas in the Isle of Man. He'd emigrated to Australia in 1975. Michael has never been to the Isle of Man, but his father would occasionally talk to him about life back on the island, telling stories about the old days, the stranger and more ghostly 
the better. And there was one very strange story he told Michael about how he had visited the mainland, the UK, as part of a group of scouts and how their leader had disappeared, literally vanished. In fact, he's talking about John Jig. Michael had half forgotten that story that his father used to tell him until he heard it on our last podcast and he of course was instantly reminded of the tale his father had told him and the way it was told to Michael ran something different to what we kind of know to be the facts and of course Christopher Michael's father he would have only been 11 or 12 at the time and almost certainly the children would have been protected from some of the more let's say sordid aspects of the story but the story Christopher Wood was told was that the scoutmaster had not been there when the ship docked that at some point between leaving the Manx capital of Douglas and landing at the pierhead in Liverpool the scoutmaster had been lost a man overboard situation he wasn't there when we landed was the words that Michael's father used and that's clearly different from the established facts but it is amazing that Michael a listener to the podcast had such a personal connection to the story and it also provides an opportunity because Michael still has relatives on the Isle of Man the Wood family is still significantly present on the Isle of Man and that's useful because most of the scouts on that trip would have been the same age as Michael's father Christopher around 11 or 12 so probably 65 today and many of them will still be with us so I'm interested in finding out more about that trip from any of those scouts that we can find I spoke with Michael last week and we're exploring about how we can raise the profile of this case on the Isle of Man I've entered the details of the case on an Isle of Man genealogy site and I know Michael will be doing something similar whether John Jick is or isn't Fred I'm still fascinated by this John Jick case maybe because it happened so close to where I grew up either John Jick disappeared by choice and lived a happy private new life and if so good luck to him or something really bad happened to him and I just don't think it's related to that attack in the gents toilets something else occurred and I want to know what that was as you can probably imagine I think about this case a lot it's always there in the back of my mind always and sometimes in the middle of the night if I can't sleep I have a thought something that keeps nagging at me a few nights ago that happened to me I was thinking about how do we connect John Jick to Burton and an idea came to me a few weeks ago I'd spent quite a few hours in Burton Library going through everybody who was registered to vote the electoral roll for the late 1960s at the time I was looking for Eastern European men who had disappeared from the roll most with the exception of one we were able to completely discount what I hadn't looked for of course was John Jick I didn't know he existed at that time what if John Jick was in the electoral roll 
for 1969, just waiting for me to find him and prove an absolute connection with Burton. Now, I knew I wasn't going to be able to rest until I did that job. And on Friday, I did that job. 200 pages of names of everyone registered to vote in October 1969 in Burton, Windshill and Stapenhill. Now, John Jick was not amongst them. It was a very, very, very long shot. And as I've always said, John Jick doesn't need a connection with Burton, only his killer does. But if he had been on it, then we would have proved a connection. But he wasn't. It's three hours, I'll never get back. But it's that kind of dedication to the cause that, you know, is needed to solve cases like this. And it doesn't actually affect whether John Jick is Fred in the slightest. Because if he was killed and brought to Windshill, he almost certainly didn't have time to register to vote. But I just wanted to check. Now, back to DNA. The most obvious way of establishing whether John Jick is Fred is through DNA comparison. Mitochondrial DNA has been gathered by the police from Fred and it has been used previously to check possible candidates. They've all been dismissed. But in order to do this, the police must have a person to match against, somebody to match their Fred DNA to. And I'm hoping that the police are trying to trace those family members of John Jick to perform that comparison test. But let's just say my confidence that they actually will is not overflowing. The wheels on the official Fred investigation can seem to turn glacially slow. So we did it. We found the DNA holders who are still alive, the descendants of John Jick, the exact people the police must match with. And thanks as always to Joe Willis on this. She does sterling work in terms of digging around at different family trees and things there's probably no one better so we're very lucky to have her working in the background on this and we kind of came at this from slightly different directions but we arrived at the same people and that's a good thing so let me take you through it i found an isle of man births marriages and deaths site and looked for the surname jick spelt with a g Edwin Jick marries in 1927 and there are two offspring. John Edwin Jick, born in 1931, that's our man, 37, when he disappears in February 1969. And Margaret Isabella Jick, born in 1942. Unfortunately, she dies in 2006. They are, at that level, the holders of the Jick DNA. John, of course, never had any offspring, so that's a cul-de-sac. But Margaret Jick did. She got married and had three children, Ruth, Emma and Paul. Margaret sadly is now dead. So the only people on this earth with relatable DNA to John Jick are Ruth Emma and Paul. Now, I won't give you their surnames, 
or in the case of the girls, their current married names, because I think that would be a trespass both on their privacy, but also the loss of their uncle. But we do know those names. We know their actual names today. And to save the police some time, we've passed those names to the Staffordshire Police. There are no excuses for the Staffordshire Police not being able to trace the descendants of John Jick. We've just told them exactly who and where they are. Three people whose DNA is significantly close to John Jick. Three people who could be compared to Fred and immediately confirm or eliminate if John Jick is Fred. A very simple task. So that's where we find ourselves today. I know this has been a relatively short podcast, shorter than normal, but it's a kind of bring you up to date where we all are with John Jick before we disappear off down another tangent. Because it's a curious time in the investigation really and in the podcast. Do we wait for the outcome of the Jick case or do we press on elsewhere? I'd be genuinely interested in your thoughts. You can drop me an email at fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. I'll definitely respond to that and you know how much I love to hear about your ideas and your thoughts and your theories. Or just drop me something in Facebook on the Facebook page. There's a lot more to find out about the JIT case. I'd like to try and track down the three lads who assaulted John Jick back in Liverpool, but that is going to be tricky. That's going to be difficult. But that's never stopped us before. But the John Jick scenario has made me think of another couple of things as well. If it was John Jick, he would have been transported to Windshill to the deposition site, probably by car. It actually applies to anyone, this, that is a non-local. And if he was transported, he was probably transported in the boot. And does that explain the curious bindings, the hands, the ankles, and then separately binding those two things together? And is the upright burial actually just a practical solution to burying a body that's been severely affected by rigor mortis and is now locked solidly in this fetal position in which we actually find him 18 months later. Kind of making an upright burial in a soft bank of earth actually a much more practical solution than a shallow traditional grave shape because the body isn't flat. I'm starting to think so and we'll be thinking more on that subject and many other things before the next podcast but that's for next time so until next time have a good one the mysterious case of fred the head is a gse media production written produced and narrated by myself Ken Davis.